Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Hello there, Adrian, with you once again. I thank you so much for listening. It's such a joy to have listeners to this program. I can't do it without you, as you all know. Really, really appreciate the feedback. Had some great feedback recently and got some really interesting new guests coming out of that. One of the things that's been happening recently, we're in June 2020 right now as I speak, is the Black Lives Matter protest. This is on top of the COVID-19 epidemic that we're going through right now. I'm really interested to have people of all sorts of cultures and different stories on this program. If you haven't heard people of different cultures, different genders, different stories, it's not because I haven't been interested in airing them. I'd invite all sorts of people, really try hard, um, especially women. I'd really love to hear all your stories out there if you know people who's got a really interesting story they're prepared to come on the program get in touch really keen to have people of all different stripes and colors and whatever clothes you wear whatever tattoos you wear piercings i don't care just want to have interesting stories come on the program get in touch today our guest is kevin murray he's a knowledge worker in the craft industry and really great advocate for craft been a curator and academic for for many many years we talk about for the most part the economic knockdown and the pros and cons that could eventuate we don't really know yet because we're in the middle of us middle of it and also we talk about the political aspect of craft and what could come out of it it's a really interesting program we um didn't quite know who was going to host it, uh, it could have been my podcast or could have been Kevin's podcast. We don't know, so it doesn't really matter. Kevin Conza runs it and I kind of run it and it's all good. It's a great conversation. It's a dialogue. Please welcome Kevin Murray. Hi, Adrian. It's Kevin Murray here in uh, a very chilly start to winter in Melbourne. Yeah. Yes, and uh, I'm uh, editing Garland magazine, so I've been a, a writer and curator working in crafts. I like to now call myself a knowledge worker for the crafts for the mm. last uh, 30 years. How did you come by that term, knowledge worker? Well, it's been used increasingly in recent years to talk about the kind of political landscape because, you know, we've seen this realignment where traditional left parties like the ALP were representing workers and people who often involved in manual trades and jobs and increasingly the constituency has changed as manufacturing has declined and increasingly knowledge work which is uh, you know a lot of information processing that goes on not just writing but management and uh, administration and journalism and uh, media and so on is taking up an increasing proportion and so as the ALP has become aligned more towards that group, which is often more liberal in its uh, values, it has uh, made it difficult, I think, for a number of people in the traditional membership of the ALP to identify with it. And that's where a lot of the move has gone towards the, the coalition, mm. uh, as which is seen as, you know, representing tradies and jobs and kind of more mm. practical thing. And... Uh, so that's kind of raised a lot of issues about, you know, knowledge work. And I saw that particularly, well, I think we've all seen it, particularly during the lockdown, where a lot of people are discussing about how to move the office into the home. Mm. And so for most knowledge work, that's perfectly doable. Yeah, totally easy. You can yeah. just do it on your laptop if you're not doing it on the desktop. And, you know, it was, I guess, a sign of that was the that very funny YouTube, which had a BBC reporter 
speaking live on television as one of his toddlers sauntered in behind yeah. him and yeah. suddenly the kind of the domestic world erupted into the to the office world which is a what a lot of people were experiencing but of course it's different it can be very different for those who are working at the bench where particularly when you're working in a workshop with other people where it's more difficult to transfer what you're doing to another kind of space so it kind of heightened that difference plus all the focus on frontline workers you know people manning the stations Do you uh, know in hospitals and so on the group of people that i um think about are the not so much australians who our economy is mostly a knowledge-based economy now it's there's very little in regard to traditional crafts here that has any impact well next to nothing actually but in a place like india You've got craftspeople that if they are in lockdown, they won't eat because they can't get any income. It's a very different situation to Australia. Those are the people that I'm thinking about in terms of lockdown. I think Australia will probably come out of this reasonably okay because of the nature of our economy and the way it all works. Well, we'll see. You know, they, they talk about uh, that wonderful expression, freezer burn when you come out of a hibernation, whether there's been damage, whether you know, businesses have closed or whatever, but... Uh, businesses are definitely that, closed, uh, hey. Yes, but uh, no, it's been interesting talking to people in India and other countries in Asia. We've got a forum coming up to focus on that and yeah. being part of the World Crafts Council, this is a, a big issue. And one of the points that I find particularly interesting is that you know many artisans are using this time quite productively to do new designs to yeah. uh, learn new skills to clean up <laughs> to do the maintenance work that's always been deferred in the workshop and yeah. uh, but there's fear that when they come out with you know possibly debt you know a lot of uh, money owing that uh, they'll be more vulnerable to people wanting to you know haggle for lower prices and um so we're trying to develop a campaign about this year as being a kind of a, a prime vintage for craft because what is made particularly during lockdown is uh, likely to be a very high quality because people have taken longer time to make is and there the, are new designs is, and so on that have come through is that the word on the street or is that an idea is that a hope it's both yeah <laughs> You know, I guess that's what, you know, running, you know, working on a magazine, you're kind of looking for seeds of stories. And yeah. where you see a little uh, flicker of hope, you try and kindle it. And it can become, you know, what they call a self-fulfilling prophecy if it's got legs, you know. if it, uh, And, you know, if, if people realise that it's not just the kind of desperate recovery of a sick patient, but, you know, it's a kind of a metamorphosis, a spring kind of, blossoming of what's been uh, in hibernation, then that sort of encourages everyone, uh, not just the consumers, but also the makers to think that uh, this is worth investing in. So that's what you, mm. it, it, I understand the scepticism there, Adrian. Um, it well, is I a word on can't. the street, but nobody knows because we don't really know what's been happening behind closed doors. So we we're, we're going on hopes. Uh, look, I, I hope, I really hope. Yeah, I, I don't have any scepticism at all. Um, in fact, one of the notes that I wrote in relation to that, you know, people are getting to new work that has been um, sitting around and not being done. New ideas and new ways of thinking. And when you've got a, a bit of space, that's a really good time to get in there and do it. I hope people are. Yes. What about you? Are you My spending life. the time differently? <laughs> no, I'm not. I wished I was. But I'm not. My life has barely changed. For a little while there, there was less cars on the road, uh, and that's about it. Maybe I haven't been to restaurants, but not that I did that very much anyway. No, my life, um, very, very little change. I work for somebody making very, very high-end furniture, and that business is ongoing and hopefully won't really see a downturn. It's really hard to tell. We won't know at all for a while. So I go to work, I come home, and I've got a bunch of projects, including the podcast, that keep me very busy. And um, lots of that activities, remote conversations anyway. Yeah, a friend of mine, Damien Wright, uh, yeah. furniture maker, 
was saying that he's got more commissions than ever now. Yeah. I think because his clients have found that the money that they would have spent on an overseas trip is now not being spent and it's time for that long awaited table or chairs or whatever that uh, they Plus had always thought about. Time at their home looking at the gaps that they want to get yeah, involved indeed. in. Um, what may happen though is that as the economy, the economic downturn t- starts gripping us uh, more fully, we'll find that when dividends go- don't get paid, people won't be in- involving themselves in arts and crafts much at all. I hope that doesn't happen. That would be a medium term eventuality. So, my hope is that people keep looking out for arts and crafts and musicians and performing arts. Um, Actually, musicians and performing arts are the ones that have really been massively hit too, hey? One other positive possibility that's emerged out of lockdown is the online teaching of craft. And you you wouldn't have thought it would be plausible, really, given the the physical nature of it, but uh, we've had some ring-arounds with World Craft Council Australia to see how people are coping and uh, many were saying they were surprised to see how successful they are. There's a big demand for people who've got a lot of time to spend and needing to to learn techniques and uh, they're kind of people are adapting to it but that's a real source of of, uh, demand at the moment which may which may continue because you know Zoom and other online platforms like that have been shown to be a kind of a substitute for what would normally involve a lot of travel, you know, whether it's yeah. international conferences, uh, even people doing haircuts by remote video, or, uh, <laughs> happy hour, um, yeah, you know, that kind right. of conviviality choirs and so on. Yeah, and, okay. you know, I think one of the other elements of uh, growth we see is the possibility of using that medium for craft, perhaps in the performance because one of the things people really enjoy is to watch something being made and we've already yeah. seen some some people who've got uh, their live streaming of their workshop with huge numbers of fans glued to every hit of the hammer and um, plane of the wood and and so on it's quite mesmerizing for a lot of people and i think this is a space i think that could really develop yeah, and it's different to youtube isn't it which is much more i'm going to make a video about this little aspect and if you like it, that's great. But this is a kind of a live thing, isn't it? You could actually interact with the craftsperson, which I think is different and much more valuable. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how it's taken up by crafts. And I think this comes down to personality, partly, that mm. you know, many in the crafts may be drawn to it, partly because they like to uh, make things in a private world. And the idea of being watched and... Having an audience for many might be uncomfortable. Might uh, be. Others mm. might be like you've spoken to Nick Mount, for instance. You know, he's a natural storyteller. You know, he's uh, he, he would he would look like the kind of person who would work well in that kind of environment. But but others maybe not. Yeah, Nick would revel, I think, in that environment. Although he is adamant that he never ever teaches. He just demonstrates, which I think is hilarious. But anyway, yeah, mm, Nick's, Nick's a, a raconteur, absolutely lovely man. I mean, you've got such an amazing set of subjects in your podcasts, Adrian. And yeah, cheers. You look at South Australia, it's doing pretty well. You know, the Jam Factory, while other organisations are being defunded, craft organisations around the country, uh, Jam Factory is doing well. Guildhouse, even though Craft South was defunded, you know, Guildhouse, they're strength to strength. They do wonderful work. Yep. You know, and a really good collection of workshops and and artists there. makes you wonder what it is about South Australia that... um, I wonder myself. There are a a number of really significant high-caliber arts people here. It's um, maybe the festival has something to do with that as a long tradition of... Crafts here, maybe the easy lifestyle, the lower cost of living here allows for more capacity for people to undertake it because, let's face it, the hourly rates of a, any person working in the arts is woeful and um, high cost of housing eliminates the capacity for people to actually attempt it. 
But also you've got a history of trade, haven't you? And like history of industry. Signal companies, uh, Coopers and is it RM Williams? Is yeah, look, all of those and businesses. And it's a have... kind of perhaps the Protestant legacy. It's the free state, you know, the, <laughs> the work ethic. Maybe the work ethic. I, look, I think a lot of people come here for the institutions that exist, like the jam factory. I did. I grew up in Melbourne, studied in Canberra, came to Adelaide for an opportunity and stayed. It wasn't my plan to stay, but here I am still, 25 years later. It's just the way things roll. Yeah, it's a familiar story. Whereas, uh, you know, in... The two most popular states of Australia, Victoria and, and New South Wales, neither of them have a, an Australia Council-funded craft organisation anymore. It's extraordinary. What about the meat market? Is that not doing it at the moment? I thought the meat market was that, still that, going. It is somewhere back in the 20th century. It's <laughs> it's a kind of a multi-purpose cultural centre. It's never hasn't uh, hosted crafts since uh, the since Jeff Kennett abolished it. In, yeah. Uh, okay. The yeah. trust in 1999. Yeah, okay. So what about crafts, Kevin? It, craft is fundamental to the human condition. I think humans love making things with their hands and, that's, and, and using materials, which is what craft ultimately is. How do you see it in, in the 2020 that we have now? Like, What's your vision for it? Well, uh, my particular kind of take on it, uh, and this is given the fact that there's a, a lot to say about uh, the enduring role of materials in our life, despite increasing kind of virtual experiences like uh, like Zoom and podcasts. But uh, and part of it's therapeutic that there is yeah. something that goes back to our early childhood and how we get comfort and uh, sense of reality and groundedness uh, in the world. But uh, I thought what what is also important to consider is the cultural dimension. This is particularly relevant in Australia, which is, you know, a settler colonial nation and which has largely imported a culture from Britain and overlaid on an ancient culture that's been here 60,000 or odd years and uh, where we we recognise reasonably widely that that this is a plays an important role as in terms of a custodian of the land of country, and we now have that welcome in most public events that acknowledges that, and uh, we celebrate widely the way in which stories are sustained through indigenous cultures in Australia, and I think there's a quite a marked difference between. The, the Western, the European, and the Indigenous in that sense, that we, being non-Indigenous, tend to focus on innovation, you know, on putting the past behind us and yeah. uh, opening up to blue sky thinking and uh, looking, you know, uh, outside silo mentalities and, and so on, <laughs> whereas we celebrate precisely the opposite in Indigenous cultures. Yeah. And for me, the crafts are a somewhere in between for us because they're techniques that have been honed over millennia in terms of an understanding of materials and uh, difficult to abstract into uh, book form. They often require you know, the kind of master-student relationship that can transmit those sorts of skills in a workshop or, a, or a, nowadays a, a university course. And um, it involves an investment of years for a person to master those particular skills and to get up to speed of what previous generations have learnt and maybe take it a bit further, potentially. But there is something in that which is about drawing a connection to the past and the feeling that, you know, in terms of a life, that it's given purpose in terms of keeping something alive in what you do. And we value languages you know, and talk about uh, how we want to preserve linguistic diversity in an understanding that each language has a different perspective on the world and our world is richer for having them. And I think in that, to that extent, you know, the crafts is a, a kind of a, a language of materials. So, you know, you're working in wood and wood has a certain 
story to tell in terms of its relationship to nature, obviously, and how we bring out the gr the beautiful grain of the timber and uh, how that becomes part of our world in in the objects that we that we use in our homes and and so on. And uh, particularly in Australia, which is you know such a where trees and fire are such an important part of our our world that uh, it helps us strengthen that connection through mostly European techniques, but with some innovations or some developments locally. And I think one of the key problems in a in a in a modern context, particularly a hyper consumerist society, is sort of a lack of purpose. You know what? <laughs> apart from binge watching the latest Netflix series, yeah. you know what is your life for? And you know, exactly. for most people, that is focused on children and, you know, keeping a household, a home going. But beyond that, in terms of our engagement with other people, it's particularly in a secular society, it's hard to, to have a sense of that. But keeping a, a kind of a skill alive and having that as part of the kind of fabric or, or musculature of a culture in Australia, you know, is a, is a really key value. And um, I think that's not just... At an individual level, something which gives pleasure, but also at a collective level, something which a country like Australia, which has got this extractivist mentality that we just need to dig holes and we'll be okay. <laughs> you know, that there's no real legacy for that, but this is no, so, so important not. for us to to think of um, of what we can make of things, yeah. what, we, what we find here. And uh, But it's that cultural dimension which is sort of a bit hard to fit into the you know, the idea of an arts industry, which is very much focused around the economic dimensions of it. The industry part of important. it. Yeah. How about you, though? How did you get involved in craft as a knowledge worker? Well, I was uh, did, my, did the arts degree at Melbourne University, like many of my generation, and uh, did a PhD. Uh, no way. What was your, P what was your thesis? It was in a field called a narrative psychology, right? Which was uh, the understanding of how people uh, give meaning to their lives through stories. Goodness and, gracious! And uh, at that stage in the late eighties, it was a really kind of trendy field, right? And uh, so I invested my years in studying it, and then in Australia, certainly, uh, it fell out of favour, and all of that work uh, had no home. <sighs> And I can also see in the universities, I was becoming quite disenchanted with them as places because they, I just found a lot of people there just there to pay their mortgage. Really? It wasn't really the kind of, you know, interest in knowledge in the university that had originally attracted me. And um, so I got involved with a lot of artists and I found that what they were doing in the studios with making paintings and, and sculptures was actually more involved in knowledge and ideas than what was happening in the university. And yeah, telling stories. At, at, mm. Yes, and at that stage, um, the meat market, you know, in a broader context, the Australia Council was trying to deal with uh, the crafts, which had previously been seen as a, in, you know, an art form of its own, uh, alongside music, theatre, visual arts, and it merged with the visual arts and there was an element of there was a com compromise involved in that but there was also an element that uh, this would uplift the crafts that it would be you know because artists or arts was considered more more important than crafts which would be seen as aligned with hobbies and pastimes yeah which is always something I know that Adrian and you and I would always contest, but um, <laughs> that's still the kind of default know. mentality around. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. the Australia Council decided that, well, well, we'll kind of engineer this partly by investing in writing, uh -huh. getting people to write about the crafts. And it was people like Anne Brennan, you know, when she was in South yeah. Australia, yeah. was one of the pioneers with this, Norris Iannou, um, yeah. that kind of generation. The Crafts Council of Victoria at the meat market, they put in for a writer-in-residence, and um, uh, I applied, and I got it, uh, very yeah. fortunately. And uh, so I spent initially six months, and they extended it to another six months there at, in a little kind of cubbyhole in the meat market. And I would go around and visit all the workshops and have these amazing discussions with uh, people like Neville Asset, who was there then. Yeah. And... 
then go back to my little cubby hole with my laptop and I'd kind of start typing and I'd think, I'm hammering out sentences. It sort of became, I became infected by, you know, this feeling of making. Yeah. And it was really quite exciting to be in this world. And it was also a welcoming world because I think there was a sense in which there was a feeling that there was a need to have more things written about craft to expose it to a broader audience. And I was certainly captivated by what was going on in these workshops and the kind of story that most makers have to tell about how they fell in love with their material. Yeah. Uh, it was a sort of romantic, there was a romantic side to it. You know, yeah. how you, it might be somebody like Susan Kahn who fell in love with aluminium um, as a jewellery making material or a glass person, you know, who there was just something about the magic of, of hot glass that uh, captivated them. And that kind of vocation seemed to be very rare and important and precious in Australia. Then put together some exhibitions and um, there was a, I was very fortunate that there was a, there were a lot of institutions around then that, to nurture that kind of development, like particularly the, what was called the Australian Exhibitions Touring Agency, AETA, that uh, was a platform for a number of touring craft exhibitions. So there was a base for somebody like me from outside the crafts to to become involved. I did spend some time, certainly in those first few years, in workshops because I recognised that to understand about crafts you had to, you had to give it a go. And uh, I was always trying to be kind of ecumenical in spending time in all of the different crafts. And that was part of the, the interest that this was a kind of a federation yeah. of different tribes how you know the understanding of how they would come together which kind of paralleled australia in a way we're still a federation of states trying to work together yeah and so the one of the sad things though well first of all i was very felt very welcome and i was grateful for the hospitality and the patience extended by so many people for me to spend time in their workshops and um but unfortunately, it also revealed to me my basic ineptitude. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I more with but I thought, at least one contribution I'll make is not to make things. <laughs> it certainly helped me realise the, um, you know, how did the, you, how did you the find the experience involved. of that though? Like, was terrifying. it terrifying? Yeah, well, I can you know, imagine. I'm, you know, as a as a writer. Even though I like to call myself a bit of a wordsmith, still you've got the delete key. Gosh, you've you know, all, all controls it. But there's nothing like that when you're working with a – well, there are uh-huh. a few things like that. But, you know, if you're carving wood or hammering into metal, you know. It's yeah. Imagine doing hot glass. Move. Yes. Oh, and, it's um, so instant. Yeah. So I, I just that, – that's left – it was a, li- it's a lifelong kind of appreciation and, and wonder at uh, the, you know, the, the making which um, that experience left me. And yeah. I, I kind of, that also, that was sort of a fairly golden period, and it was still the shadow of the 70s when it was a social movement. Things yeah. were becoming a lot more professionalised, and then they became corporatized, and the councils became these kind of corporate entities, and and then I've seen the gradual erosion of, erasure of um, funding. And this really sadness that I have now that, somebody in my position today wouldn't have the same opportunity. And so I'm really trying to find ways in which I can pass on the flame in some way in terms of uh, the writing and curating. And there's just so few, there's so much less kindling around yeah. for that than there was. Um, there's very few commercial galleries too. Yes. You know, the role of the, you know, as a curator, I was always very impressed at the work that, that artists would make for an exhibition, the amount of time that they would put into things. Mm. And that was partly because they had these commercial galleries and gallerists that would encourage them. And the work that they made for a touring exhibition potentially could then be sold in a commercial gallery. So that's not as, uh, perhaps not as evident today, although there are still some really strong ones. Uh, there are you know, some like new ones too. Sabia and um, mm. it was a sad case in in. Canberra, obviously, but things have changed. You know, there's been a move towards the maker more than the artist in craft. Um, you know, the rise of the the farmers' markets then led to the rise of craft markets, so it became okay. much more kind of low key, in a sense, but maybe more 
there was sort of a, with the maker movement more of a bit a bit of a more broader wasn't so elitist no yeah the the um, maker would have direct contact with their clients rather than going through a gallery or some other mediator. Mm. Yeah, which can obviously have its um, benefits. But I remember, you know, like your work, Adrian. You had a, you know, the work you were, the, the furniture you were making had really strong stories to tell, like about water and environment and these sorts of things mm. in its sort of gallery context. And you know, I do sort of wonder whether that's ebbed a bit and how we can revive that space. Uh, that, um, that may be an interesting task. Yeah, the, I can only really talk about furniture, but ideas and stories are our currency. It's pretty much what we do. Um, but I don't think a whole lot of people fully understand that that's it. And people get caught up with notions of design just purely being a style as opposed to a whole lot of other things for instance or they might get caught up in just the material rather than the whole object and what that object may mean in the broader context so it's yeah, well, that's, and i think that's that that draws me to craft more than say to design because obviously the two are closely connected but uh, mm-hmm. you know most of the talk around design feels to me like kind of media releases it's sort of <laughs> promotion it's about fashion it's about uh, uh, it's, you know it's sort of fairly yeah. superficial talk whereas yep with craft you can always go back to you know how was it made and go into some depth there's a story behind it yeah. uh, which yeah. for me makes it a lot more interesting that's so interesting for me uh, to hear because most of the at least from my perspective, most of the emotional, uh, intellectual energy is in the land of design. And well, I think there's an element of cringe there for, Aust- for countries like Australia, to, the desire to be, you know, globally recognised and to be perhaps. a part of the big fairs like, you know. Yeah. Um, is that where you think it, it... My only basil. Yeah, is that where you think it's kind of coming from or is there... The, the, I, I see it as a, a kind of a little bit grassroots as well. A lot of the craft-based workshops at universities have turned more into design workshops I'm, and using new technologies, using computers and modelling and new materials that, you know, like 3D printing and things like that, going away from just skills and teaching skills so there's obviously a desire from students that that's what they want to do otherwise they wouldn't do it hmm, I, um, it's interesting RMIT University the the school of art there is now kind of reviving craft as a specialization seeing that that's super really interesting there are many who actually do want that yeah level of, uh, skill and uh, see that as something which gives value to the work which is intrinsic and yeah. uh, but whether they uh, whether they can allow for the level of specialization that uh, traditional workshops offered uh, remains to be seen there was a period when you know there was a number of workshops like uh, north city north city four and uh, uh, you had the gray street studio in adelaide the kind of yeah which had kind of an apprenticeship model uh, offering that kind of deep skill to kind of nurture that. And obviously you've got the jam factory as well with the um, associates there. Mm-hmm. So, and that they, they're prov- I could see they persist, you know, that they, they continue as very important elements in their ecology in terms of building those skills. But, you know, I think the consumerist model is about 24 seven having anything when you want it. So it yeah. kind of, Specialization is is the opposite of that. It's about limiting your options and focusing. And so it's a. I wonder whether the you know in a way the lockdown and this kind of slowing down of things and the time that people had to to be able to focus on something, <laughs> maybe use rekindling this appreciation. <laughs> I'm so, that we'll is see. that is a look absolutely. I was going to mention exactly the same thought. Yeah, it is. It's it, there's there's a focus on the local, perhaps that. Let's hope that that lasts as well. You know, it's not just a short term focus. That um, you know, maybe maybe there's a bit more now that we are sort of globally connected. 
24-7 if we want to via Zoom or Skype or even Zencast, which we're on now, leaves us space to also go to the farmer's market and go to the local potter and get some beautiful bowls and plates and go to the local jeweller and get some jewellery for ourselves rather than just going to the largest stores. Well, I think we're in a unique position in Australasia that we're kind of relatively free of the virus, but Mm. only if we keep our borders closed. So we're likely to see very little international travel for the next year or two until the vaccine is developed. Do you think... And I was just off... Yeah, that's what people are saying. But, you know, people growing, being a bit hesitant and because the level of travel, you know, that we've been doing, you know, that... Yeah. Where previously you'd get down to the beach, you know, at summer for a couple of weeks. No one thinks twice now about heading off to Hokkaido for the snow season <laughs> in January. Um, you know, or, you know, flitting off for the weekend to Bali or to to Phuket or whatever. That's yeah. it, it just become, it sort of replaced the, the trip to the country or to the beach. Uh, so there's, you know, I think there is a natural return to these possibilities but i was just talking we're doing some work with east gippsland and um talking to somebody there uh at the shire office about uh you know what's the next summer is going to bring hopefully not more fires as they did last summer but given the fact that for many people they would have set aside a couple of a few grand for an overseas trip fine that they won't be doing that so looking to get out of the deal with the cabin fever of winter to other horizons, perhaps more likely to go uh, to the country for that kind of experience and how it is that all the studios and workshops can kind of create a bit of an itinerary similar to a wine route, wine tour. Now, that's a very interesting opportunity. Yeah, that's good. To visit, to learn about what's made here and maybe Mm. buy some things or do some lessons or something like that. Mm. I think there's a real sense of this being quite a magic period before things before our borders open up again yeah we we hope so and you've got so many regions obviously in south australia that um yeah yeah the the wine beckons that's always a good one yeah but you've got a lot of crafts in the barossa haven't you and uh, oh there's crafts in the barossa yeah look mm. south australia's uh, got some fantastic places to go and visit and what was the what what's it like in east gippsland now we're like not quite, what, five months out of the horrific fires there. Are people recovering? Well, they're using this time to do a bit of recovery in terms of cleaning up their properties. And um, yeah. uh, we were fortunate with the World Craft Council to get some donations from overseas to help rebuild workshops. Okay, wow. So we've dispensed some of that money, and so people are, are doing that. And and. I think I'm not sure we're going to see how people emerge out of out of out of the lockdown in terms of their practices. But the the feeling yeah. is pretty good at the moment. I must say it, it's fairly optimistic. That's really what about good. What your feeling around well, South Australia? Yeah, I mean South Australia. Um, the fires are much more of a concept. There was a, a terrible fire in the hills, the Cudley Creek fires. They were called, and people were devastated. Their whole villages destroyed. I had an idea uh, not so long ago to have a whole podcast series called, which I entitled Fire and Virus because it seemed to me that the people that were involved in the fires now had a lockdown to contend with and just as they were getting up and running and inviting people back into their communities to be tourists or whatever and get their businesses running again, nobody could leave their homes. And it it felt to me like the people in these communities had a, a double or a triple whammy, which I thought was grossly unfair. I wanted to talk to craftspeople and artists that had been directly affected by the fires. But you know what? I couldn't find anybody that was interested in talking about on the record, that is, talking about their experiences, which I think is shows how raw the experience actually was. And maybe I'm, I was too early in inviting people to talk about that sort of thing. But I feel for those people very deeply, and I felt that the fires that we experienced here in Australia were emblematic of a or, or at least um, 
a catalyst for a, a, another shift in the consciousness if, in Australia from uh, the way we view our land. So for me, when Europeans first visit this country, the land is frightening and full of danger. hundred years ago, that get conquered and then the land is seen to be a place for production and wealth generation. And then with the Tasmanian dams, our environment, our wilderness is seen as valuable in its own right, regardless of how much wealth or money you can uh, make out of it. And now with the fires, it seemed to me that the shift had gone to a more global, no, we need to look after not only our own land, but the earth. And for me, the virus was kind of a prick in that little bubble. I thought, how dare this virus come along at this point in time when we've got this, it seemed to me, a little bit of a groundswell to actually get some real change in people's thinking around looking after our world that we live on and taking care of it more. And now all of a sudden, oh, no, it's the virus. We've just got to look after ourselves again. I was really annoyed at the virus. Well, I don't know. I and mean, it's an open question, I think, Adrian. There's yeah. a, there is a sense in which both phenomena, the fire and the virus, remind us that, uh, you know, mm. that we're guests of nature, that we're not this um, divine creature that uh, has dominion over everything that uh, we're vulnerable and uh, we have to accept that. And uh, that's that's not a comfortable message given, you know, the way in which we've inhabited the planet in modern times. Uh, and it's a blow to our ego to be undone by, by these forces. But <clears throat> perhaps it also leads to a broader recognition of, uh, as you say, the, the need to look after. Mm. our world and uh, you know the, the issue with forestry and climate change is also reflected in the story of the virus which many people see as about the encroachment of uh, agriculture into wilderness um, uh -huh. and increasing cross infection occurring with uh, like bats and uh, human and domesticated animals that occurs because of that uh, expansion. So there is a kind of common story underneath that, even though perhaps it's been a double, a cruel blow in Australia. Mm, I I see exactly that. I have to say my my temper at the virus has waned. Look, humans are incredibly adaptable and very resilient, and it it does seem to me that the notion of the fires hasn't gone away. I, th I think there is still a shift, and I think it's a profound shift in Australia's consciousness, and I think it's probably almost uh, a worldwide thing too. I think the Australian fires are going to have legs intellectually, mu much deeper legs than just the physical attack on the ground. Yes, well, let's let's hope so. But you know, before we bring things to a close, Adrian, I can I ask you a question? Absolutely. Uh, look, I'm, you know, editing a magazine, and the readership for this magazine is about, you know, trying to expand the audience of craft, and yeah. so it's been particularly, you know, with the kind of person in mind who might do an evening pottery, pottery class or, uh, or go to an exhibition, uh, who's who finds themselves gaining pleasure from objects, and maybe is curious about them to kind of bolster that that interest and to grow it and to, to work with it, perhaps to connect them with other what, what other people are doing and so on. But essentially it's stories that people read. And uh, so it's sort of story-based. But alongside that, there's been a lot of craft theory. And uh, people like Glenn Adamson, for instance, and Richard Sennett and mm. so on. And I'm, I'm curious for you if I can ask you as a maker, mm. as a craft artist or as a <clears throat> furniture worker, a woodworker, what what role do you feel reading plays for you? What sort of reading, are you, what sort of writing are you a, a drawn to? Do you find useful or inspiring? Is it? Mm. Would you get much out of somebody like Richard Sennett or? I haven't Bernardism read or? Richard Sennett's book. The only one of his that I know of is called The Craftsman, but I plan to. I don't have a copy yet. I am interested in validating what I know to be true in my own 
life. I have a degree in engineering. I never, what's the right way to describe this? Um, my planned role from my parents or society was uh, much more professional and certainly didn't involve any use of my hands. That was a choice and it was a super good choice to make for me personally. So, look, I... That's your specialisation. Yeah, uh, but it... it, hmm. I did it because when working as an engineer was incredibly bored. It was just woefully devastating to my whole being. And I'm super glad that I left and went to an art school. Really glad. And now, this is not about the types of reading that I'm interested in, but it, I think it I think it can illustrate where I'm coming from when I make my answer. I do read books like Sennett's book, even though I haven't read that particular one. Uh, I interviewed Peter Korn, who wrote a book called Why We Make Things and Why It Matters, and his, um, it, that, that book's fundamentally about how to give it, live a good life. And he, like many other books, you know, is, is a, after a search for meaning and fulfilment. And there's a, a, a chap called Mahali Mahali. I don't know if he's still alive, but he wrote a very influential book for me called Flow, which, um, which put into words exactly what I felt when I was making something. You know, time just disappeared and the making was not frightening for me. It was just a joy. And I felt that when I played music too. You know, I was really... I've spent a lot of time in my life chasing down a feeling where time disappears and the inner voice in my head that's constantly chattering just shuts up and that all of the anxieties that I may feel don't exist anymore. It's it's a it's a beautiful thing and I think that people can learn yeah it's therapy but it's actually I think there's a fundamental thing there in the human condition that w- which makes hands, the use of hands, really important. Yeah, well, I think you've uh, you know touched on something which is obviously relating that idea of flow to your experience and 100%. working with. Yeah, and, 100%. Uh, so what you know, one of the challenges that we're looking at with the magazine is to kind of reassess what knowledge is because. Uh, it's generally seen as something which is found in a book, but to think about knowledge as something in the hands as well. And uh, how we set up a structure for that, to yeah. acknowledge that is Listen, something which... Kevin, uh, one of the things that creative people find very difficult to talk about is the creative process and what that means and how it's done. That, for me, is a super fascinating topic because the stories that get told around that are quite often like a history that, say, a politician or a capitalist might come up with after the event, which, yeah, it sort of lays out all of the the landmarks along the pathway, but actually misses out completely on the notion of luck, for instance, or just being in the right place at the right time. And the creative process is kind of a little bit like that. There's so much luck involved. Somebody might just have a a little, like I remember making um, a piece of furniture which I entitled High Water Table and it was about the salinity of the Murray River, bizarrely. But anyway, that's what it was. And I had the idea and one of my friends was just, we were just talking about it and he says, there's a low water table and all of a sudden the piece was designed conceptually. Do, do you see? Yeah, it's like, so you, you have these conversations and there's no way that I could really articulate that in an artist statement or even in the blurb that went along with the piece of work that got made. But for me, it's fundamental to it. You know, I remember well, it, that, yeah. The book is the work. The work holds that. That, uh, that information, that story, it's, it's yeah. embodied. Um, yeah. Can we just normally do this, but, you know, just the final note, maybe if you'd indulge me, is to remember, I don't know if you knew Martin Corbin? I do. I, he was a very, very, yeah, yep. Yeah. No, Martin. I, you know, I worked no, closely with him as a curator and I, I didn't feel we kind of ever got quite 
opportunity to mourn his passing. I know he had a complicated life and uh, yeah. and so on, but he, you know, what he used to do in finding a, 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 a secondhand chair mm. and then disassembling it yeah. and then using every single piece to produce something like a cabinet or a bowl. Yeah, I'm looking the at right now. That kind of discipline, the sense of care for that object and to give it a new life, you know, I think was such a beautiful method of making. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, that and I'm, with that object, it's a kind of a, a legacy of that which, which does endure. And I think it's a testament to that passing. So I'd, I'd quite like to rest, if we could finish on a... Oh, I miss mean, blue, But there are many more yeah. like Martin Corbin in Australia, and I feel that... I feel really strongly that we need to kind of celebrate what they offer and that they contribute to our world. And no doubt somebody will, you, Adrian, when uh, in a in a few decades' time. But uh, we we shouldn't remember that we do have that kind of capacity to remember. Yeah, thanks for reminding me about Martin's shrines and his clocks. And I got to know and worked with Martin pretty well. Yeah, I, he's missed. He is. And uh, so thanks, Adrian, for the work you do with the Designer Maker Revolution to keep those sorts of stories alive, at least to listen to. Yeah, yeah. And look, ditto, Kevin. Absolutely. Like, I've only scratched the surface of Garland. And um, what a journey you've got. Yeah, well, there's a lot (laughs) more to see. Thanks Um, very much for your time. uh, Thank you, Kevin. It's been wonderful. Wonderful.